Chapter Twenty Four of It Happened in Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It Happened in Egypt by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Twenty Four, Playing Heavy Father to Rachel. Never had the enchantress Isis looked so enchanting to my eyes as she looked that night. I felt, as the set trooped on board, like an anxious hen-mother, who, contrary to her fears, has safely returned a brood of ducklings to the home chicken-coop after a swim out to sea. I valued each duckling, even the last downy, far more than I had dreamed it would be possible. But there was one duckling valued so much more than all the rest, how much more I had realized only when, cackling on the bank, I saw it on the wave, that knowing that it was safe made me hysterical with joy. I could have kissed its napkin when it slid it off its lap and I picked it up, the napkin, not the duck, at dinner. The drawback was that I had not saved it, as Anthony had saved Monny. It had no reason to be grateful to me, or care more than it had always cared for a friend. And still another drawback presented itself when the confusion of dressing in haste and dining, as the enchantress Isis steamed out of Luxor, gave me time to think. The duckling was not my duckling, and considered that it had calmly laid plans for me to capture an heiress, considering also that it had not yet abandoned these plans, I saw little reason to hope that, now I had come to a few, just a few, of my senses, it would ever take the idea seriously of becoming mine. To abandon, once and forever, the duckling's simile, the first thing I did on board the boat, after recovering from the excitement of seeing Mabel off by train with the Bronsons, was to wonder how I could make up for all this hideous waste of time when I might have been making love to Biddy. But there was no chance to say anything personal to her that night. I had to hear, and wanted to hear, the story of all that had happened from the moment she and Monny entered Rashid Bey's gate, to the moment they came out. Then there was Antun's story to follow, and after that we had to compare notes, how everybody had felt, what everybody had thought, what everybody had done. This subject was inexhaustible, and kept cropping up in the midst of others, but that of Mabella Hanim, her escape from bondage and from conversion to Islam, and what revenge Rashid was likely to take, was almost as engrossing. When at last, late that evening, I managed to get Biddy alone for a moment, she could no more be induced to talk of herself than if she had been a ghost without visible existence, a mere voice, to speak of others, Monny by preference. What a heroine Monny had been from first to last! And what did I think now about the foolishness of that theory, the theory that Better was a spy, and had led his employers to believe that Mrs. Jones was travelling with her stepdaughter, concealed under an impeccably important nom de guerre? What I thought was that we must get a hold of Miss Rachel Guest, and question her as to her whole acquaintance with the Armenian, learning how, by all that was incredible, the double mystery of mixed names had originated. Monny knows only that Rachel was supposed to be the heiress, testing her personal attractions by pretending to be the poor school-teacher, said Bridget. The child's been wildly enjoying the situation, for she was tired of young men. Rachel wasn't, and Rachel's been profiting by it, far more wickedly. As for Esme, I'm sure no thought of her name coming into this business ever entered Monny's head. We must try to find out what Better said to Rachel at the beginning, as you advised of her, and all about it. After what I told you that I heard from Esme about an exciting love romance, any mistake of this sort might be particularly dangerous. The organization might think it had more right than ever to be bitter against us. 
And now I don't mind your confiding in your friend Captain Fenton. I think I'd like him to know my story. What Biddy had told me about Esme was, that the girl had confessed, in a letter, having been made love to, during a summer holiday in the mountains with friends, by the son of a man her father had deeply injured. The accidental meeting had been a real romance. The girl and the young man thought that no one save themselves shared their secret. But who could tell, when fate itself stood between them with a drawn sword? The love of Romeo for Juliet was a safe and simple affair compared with the merest flirtation between the daughter of Richard O'Brien and the son of John Halloran, whom O'Brien's testimony had sent to prison for life. Sometimes I thought, as the days went on, that Biddy guessed, not my change of heart, but my new understanding of it, and that she wanted quietly and gently to show me, according to Bill Bailey's pet expression, there was nothing doing. Her expressed wish that Fenton should hear her story looked to my suddenly suspicious mind as if his strong personality and his extremely picturesque position had made an appeal to the romance in her, as it had in the case of Mrs. East and perhaps Monty Gilder. Always interested in Mrs. Jones from first sight, when he had laughingly said that the little sprite of a woman would be almost too alluring, if surrounded by an air of mystery and intrigue, Anthony was now frankly preoccupied with her affairs. He was not even annoyed that, unaided by me, her quick mind had grasped the secret of his identity. It was like her to spring on to it by instinct, he said, smiling that thoughtful smile of his, which was more than ever effective in his Arab get-up, and like her not to give anybody else a hint, except you, of course, though she must have been tempted sometimes. I suppose, and he looked up quickly, she hasn't given anyone else a hint? I'd swear she hasn't. Miss Gilder, you're sure she hasn't the slightest suspicion? As sure as a man can be of anything about a woman. You aren't trying to evade the question, Duffer. On my word, I'm not. I feel morally certain Miss Gilder labors under the impression that you're as brown as you're painted, that somehow or other you can't be Muslim because she's seen you without a turban, and you've got the hair of a Christian. Maybe she thinks you're a cop. I heard her learnedly arguing the other day that the cops are the only real Egyptians. She has the air of studying you sometimes, but with all her study she sees you only as an Egyptian of high birth and attainments, with a few drops of European blood in your veins, perhaps just enough to make things aggravating, and a vague right to a princely position if you choose to overlook something or other and claim it. There you have her conception of you in a nutshell. There would still have been room in that nutshell for Cleopatra's ideas concerning her niece's feelings. But if she were right, it was Anthony's business to discover those feelings for himself, provided that he cared to do so. And of this I was not sure. There was the doubt that it might be Biddy, even though he appeared to attach some unexplained importance to Miss Gilder's continued ignorance about himself. The day after leaving Luxor there was no time for the heart-to-heart -heart talk I planned for Rachel Guest. Each hour, each minute almost, was taken up with my duties as conductor, which I was obliged to regard seriously, whether I liked them or not. If I did not, the set growled, snapped, or clamored, which gave me even more trouble than doing my duty. For some reason best known to herself, but suspected by me, Mrs. East kept to her suite, nursing a grievance and the Siberian lapdog from a suet. This saved me a certain amount of brain strain, for among other places of interest we had to pass near was ancient Hermonthus, where in her Cleopatra incarnation she had built a temple with a portrait of herself adoring the patron bull of the city. 
If she had known how easy it would be to visit the ruins, she would have been capable of desiring the boat to stop, or telegraphing complaints to Sir Marcus if it hadn't. The two excitements of the day were passing through a huge lock, with sides like those of a canyon, and scarlet doors such as might adorn the house of an ogre, in which we nearly stuck, and were saved by Antun seizing the pole from the inferior hands of a Nubian boatman, also a visit to Esna, a very Coptic town, starred with convents built by the ever-present St. Helena, sacred once to the Latos fish, now sacred to gorgeous baskets of every size and color, also somewhat over-beaded and over-scarabed. A ruined quay jutted into the wine-brown water, where Roman inscriptions could have spied out, if any one had had eyes to spare from the basket-sellers, the sellers of grapefruit, and the other shouting merchants who flocked to head us off on our way to the temple, despite a flurry of rain that freckled the deep sand of the landing-hill. But nobody did have eyes for anything Roman, now that Cleopatra sulked in her throne-room, and our only archaeologist was as absent-minded as if he had been his own astral body. He had seen the wisdom of sticking to the trip, and not turning back by train with the Bronsons and somebody else, as he might have yearned to do, if Monny were right, but history had suddenly become as dry husks to Sheridan. His soul was no longer with us, journeying up the Nile, and I suspected his body of packing to join it, as soon as things had been arranged to un-Hanem Mabel, and send her, freed from a marriage which was not marriage, freed from this fear or forcible conversion, home to the United States. It was just on the cards, Anthony and I thought, that there might be another demonstration at Esna. It was just on the cards, Anthony and I thought, that there might be another demonstration at Esna, that unruly town where Muhammad Ali banished the superfluous dancing-girls of Cairo in the 1840s. If Rashid Bey had not discovered the truth about that hurried departure from Luxor for Asuet, as a matter of fact, Mabel and her guardians were almost thrown on board as the train began to move, he might have sent emissaries, or come himself to Esna, where he must have known the enchantress Isis would land. As for Better and his employers, Anthony, who now knew Biddy's suspicions, was inclined to think that, even if she were right, we had seen the last of them. After such a setback as that in the temple of Mut, he thought that they would not only be discouraged, but frightened. They had run away from us, in the temple, and despite the proverb concerning those who fight and run, to fight another day, it was probable that men of their calibre would see the wisdom of abandoning the chase. They had shown themselves cowards, Anthony thought, whatever their object had been in attacking Miss O'Brien and Miss Gilder, and though we must be on the watch during the rest of the trip, his idea was that the men had retreated in fear of arrest. In any case, we had no trouble at Esna, and saw no sinister faces peering out of low doorways in the bazaars, or over the heads of the pretty, sometimes fair and blue-eyed, dancing-girls' descendants. Buried in the heart of the village we came upon the temple. Only the portico was visible under piled houses and a triumphant mosque, but once we were down in the entombed temple itself, it gave a sense of secrecy and mystic rites, to look up from under the dark roof of heavy stone with its painted zodiac, out from hidden halls of carving and color, to the clustered houses of dried brick built before the temple was uncovered. There was a sense of tragedy and failure, too, toiling up the steep slope to the town level, and passing, on the half-buried walls, gigantic carved figures making thwarted gestures, in commemoration of kingly triumphs forgotten hundreds upon hundreds of years ago. At night there was a fantasia on board, with our boatmen dancing each other down, 
like highlanders, and the next day brought us to Edfu, which all the women were wild to see, because Robert Hitchens had called its green-blue the true color of love, an adorable temple sacred to Horus, as there he conquered and killed Set. It was only after we had passed Sir Ernest Castle's red house, with the smoky irrigation works where fourteen hundred Arabs have chased the desert into the background, and after we had visited the splendid twin temples of light and darkness at Kom Ambo, towering majestically above the Nile bank, that I found time to catechize and lecture Miss Guest. I contrived to separate her from her sculptor, and lure her to a part of the deck unfrequented because it was windy. Rachel was looking happy, young, and prosperous, in one of Monny's most becoming and expensive dresses. At first I think she felt inclined to be flattered by my desire for her society, for I had never yet wished her joy, or formally congratulated Bailey. One look into my eyes, with those clever, slanting green orbs of hers, however, and instinct must have told her that my intention was different. She glanced round for an excuse to escape, but found none, for I hedged her in from all her friends. Then she quickly decided to shunt me off on an emergency track laid by herself. "'What a wonderful day it's been,' she remarked, and Kom Ambo is one of the best temples. The only thing I didn't like was those mummied crocodiles. Their smiles look so hypocritical, and to think they've been smiling them for thousands of years. It must be unpleasant to smile the smile of a hypocrite, even for a few weeks.' I seized the chance to work up to the business. "'Yes, indeed,' agreed Miss Guest, a slight color staining her cheeks. "'And didn't you notice several new sorts of wall inscriptions?' "'Yes,' I admitted. "'But if you don't mind, I'd like to skip sixteen or seventeen centuries and come down to you. I've been wanting a chat.' "'Why, I'm delighted,' she exclaimed, frightened, but all the more ingratiating. "'Oh, isn't the Nile beautiful as we come toward Nubia?' And aren't the Sakiyas more interesting than the Shadufs, which they mostly use when the river is low? Willis said quite a lovely thing, about the Sakiyas, that their chains of great water-cups, going up and down, look like enormous strings of red and green prayer-beads, being told by unseen hands. He ought to be a poet, he's so romantic. No doubt everything about you, Miss Guest, must make an appeal to his romantic side, I cut in, while she was forced to pause for breath. I hope I do appeal to him, she said meekly. I never thought to be so happy. This was a direct appeal to me, and it hit the mark. I didn't care a rap about Willis Bailey, or his sketches, or the wooden statues with crystal eyes, with which he was going to make the fashion. If Miss Guest chose to hook her shining fist with a false fly, it wasn't my business. It was hers and his, and perhaps Monny's, for Monny had backed Rachel up in creating a wrong impression, as if they two had been playing together, like children, to trick the grown-ups. But I had to find out what had started the ball rolling, because it looked as if that ball had come out of the pocket of better. "'I'm glad you're happy,' I said, "'and my hope is that you'll remain so. I wish you so well that perhaps you'll give me the right to ask a few questions. You see, I'm one of your oldest friends in Egypt, after Miss Gilder and her aunt and Mrs. Jones. You met Miss Gilder and Mrs. East travelling in France. They've told me. Yes, in a dining-car. We were put at the same table and got talking.' I just loved Monny at first sight, and she's been heavenly to me. What fun we've had! I never had any fun before. I hardly knew the meaning of the word. I suppose it must have amused you and Miss Gilder, I planted my arrow at last, though not remorselessly. This quaint idea that's got round, about your having changed places. Rachel's face crimsoned. 
"'Oh, Lord Ernest,' she sighed in an explosive whisper, with a glance round to see if any one were near. But we were alone with the beginnings of a sunset that flushed the dun hills as unripe peaches are flushed on a garden wall. I've promised Monny not to say a word and spoil her fun, as long as the trip lasts. She's finding out, you see, which people are really attracted to her, for herself. She says it's a wonderful experience, and it's given her such a rest for men, the silly ones, you know. It isn't my fault. I'd tell in a minute if she'd let me. Was it she who began the game, I dared to inquire, or was it better? Now this is a question I really have a right to ask. I'll tell you why afterward, if you don't know already, from Monny. No, I don't think Monny said anything to make me understand that, Rachel answered, stammering a little, and trying pathetically not to look anxious. But I'll answer you, of course. There's nothing to hide from you now that I can see. It was better who began. He was the most intelligent, extraordinary person. I don't believe any one fully realized it except me. But from that first night at Alexandria he seemed to feel that I saw something of value behind his poor face. He was very sensitive, and he attached himself to me in the most beautiful, faithful way. Really and truly, if there hadn't come that trouble about the hashish place, which wasn't his fault, because Monny wanted to go, and when she wants things she wants them very much, I believe I could have made a Christian of him. He would have been a wonderful convert. We talked more about religion than anything else, but he used to like to chat about America, because he'd been there and hoped to go again. That was the way the joke about Monny and me started. He did not ask me to speak of it, but it can't matter now. He told me when he was in New York, with a family who took him from Egypt, one day the great Mr. Gilder's daughter was pointed out to him in the street. She was with her father, in an automobile, but there was a block in the traffic. A policeman was keeping it back, so he saw her distinctly for several minutes, and he was interested, because his employers told him how important the Gilders were, and how Mr. Gilder used to have his daughter guarded every minute for fear she might be kidnapped for ransom, as several rich people's children had been. Monny couldn't have been more than fourteen then, as it's seven years ago, and better said that the little girl he saw in the automobile was exactly like me, hardly at all like what Monny is now. He wanted me to tell him, for a reason which he vowed and swore was very important, whether I wasn't really Miss Gilder and she was Miss Guest. Well, well, I thought the idea so funny, so thoroughly quaint, you know, and like something in a book, that just for fun I answered that I couldn't tell him anything until I'd consulted my friend. Monny nearly went wild about it. She said she'd come to Egypt to have adventures, and she was going to have them, no matter whether school-kept or not. That's just a little slang expression people use at home sometimes. I dare say you've heard her say much the same thing. She said this idea of betters was too good to miss, and we'd get bushels of fun out of it. So we have, in different ways." and she's been lovely about giving me dresses and things. When she and I talked the matter over, she understood why better should have thought she was more like me at the age of fourteen than like her present self. She'd had typhoid fever just before the time she must have been pointed out to him, and it had left her thin as a rail and as pale as a ghost. Her hair was short, too, and some of the color had been burnt out of it by the fever. Now you know she has a brilliant complexion, and her face is much rounder than mine, as well as more pink and white. Compared to her, I am sallow, I'm afraid, and lanky, and when she and I stand together, her hair looks bright gold, and mine light brown in comparison. Monny wouldn't let me tell better right out that he was mistaken about us. She said we wouldn't fib, but we'd act self-conscious, as if we had a secret, and he'd stumbled on it. 
He must have started the story. Oh, if you could call it a story. I don't believe anything has ever been put into words. It was in the air. People got the idea. But better must have put it into their heads. Neither Monny nor I did more than smile and look away, and change the subject if any one hinted. We said, You mustn't breathe such things to Mrs. East or Mrs. Jones, or they'll be angry. Apparently nobody ever did dare to breathe it to them. And I think Monny mentioned you, too, Lord Ernest. She didn't want you to know. She was afraid you'd say that the whole thing was nonsense. I suppose it was Enid Biddle who came to you? She was afraid Mr. Snell, but it isn't worth talking about now. Only she is a cat. Miss Biddle had said exactly the same of Mrs. Guest. Naturally, however, I did not mention the coincidence. Now I've told you everything you wanted to know, haven't I? Rachel went on. Or were there any more questions you'd like to ask, I mean, about better? Only one more, I think. Did it ever strike you that he was curious about you, or rather about Miss Gilder, who, you both let him suppose, was really Miss Guest? Anything about your name? Why, yes, he was curious. They say Arabs always are, if you let them be. Not that he is exactly an Arab, but I suppose Armenians are the same. He seemed to want to know things about me, what I'd done, where I'd lived, and, oh, lots of little questions he would ask. Monny and I made up our minds from the first, as I told you, that there mustn't be any fibs. I simply put him off. He never got anything out of me at all. I see, I said, and let myself drift away from her into thoughtfulness. Is that all, then? Yes, that is all, thank you. Her tone sounded as if she were relieved of a mental weight, and would like to go. I expected her to make some excuse. It would soon be time to dress for dinner, or she had to write a letter. But no, she lingered. She was trying to bring herself to say something. I waited in silence, my eyes on the shining river, looking back at the golden trail of the sun that was like a rich mantle draping a gondola on a fete day in Venice. I suppose you think, she forced the words out at last, that Willis Bailey wouldn't have fallen in love, or proposed, if he hadn't thought like the rest, that I, I, I don't see why he shouldn't, Miss Guest. He really does seem to care for me, as I am, you know, and I've never told him a single untruth. I've nothing to blame myself for. I'm sure of that. Yet you don't approve of me one bit. You think I'm a kind of adventuress. So does Mrs. Jones. Me. Why, what would the people at home in Salem say if any one suggested such a thing? You don't know the life I've led, Lord Ernest. I can imagine. You don't want to go back to it again, do you? It does seem as if I couldn't now. It seemed so, even before Willis. Oh, I'm sure you think I never meant to go back, once I'd broken free from the dull grind. No harm in that. I'm glad you say so. It took all my legacy to see the world a little. Well, nearly all, not quite, perhaps, to tell the truth. And being brave has brought me this reward, the love of a man who can give me everything worth having. I shan't be outside life any more, and Willis won't have any reason to blame me when he... when he... No reason, of course, I fitted into her long pause. But men as well as women are unreasonable sometimes, you know. And if he should be so, uh, wrong-headed as to think you'd deceived him about yourself, then he ought to blame Monny, not me. He ought, perhaps, but the question is what he will do. And you can't like having a sword hanging over your head. Supposing he should be unjust, and refuse to carry out— Oh, Lord Ernest, you don't think he will, after he's sworn that I'm the only woman in the world he could ever have loved. He thinks me much better looking than Monny. He says she hasn't got a soul yet. He doubts if she will ever have one. I didn't doubt it. 
I thought I had heard it stirring in the throes of birth, a soul such as would blind the eyes of a Rachel guest, with its white shining. Monny had said that she would find her soul in Egypt, but the mention of this was not indicated just then. I haven't the courage to tell him, even if there were really anything definite to tell, Rachel went on. It would be insulting a man like Willis to suggest that he'd been influenced. You know what I mean. But now we're talking of it. Oh, do advise me. We're planning to be married in Egypt at the end of this trip, and then settle down in Cairo for Mr. Bailey's studies at the museum. He came up the Nile only for me, you see. And he says I shall be his first model for the new style. My eyes are just right, as if they'd been made on purpose to help him. I lie awake nights, wondering what if, before the wedding, when he finds out for certain that my name is really only Rachel Guest, and that I'm—oh, I daren't think of it. Then, if you want me to advise, why don't you in some tactful, perhaps joking way, speak of the story better started, and—I can't, I simply can't. Yet you feel it would be better? Yes, sometimes I feel it. You help me, Lord Ernest, you tell him. And then, see if you see any signs. You'll make him understand how dreadful it would be to throw me over, because I'm poor and have been a nobody till now. I'll do my best, I heard myself weakly promising. No wonder I have earned the nickname of Duffer. End of chapter 24